Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is about the difference between disorganized attachment style and preoccupied attachment style. I feel like I haven't really explained it very well up until this point, and I haven't really explored it very well up until this point. In this episode, I talk with Bob about his experience with disorganized attachment. The conversation gets pretty deep and pretty personal between the two of us, so I just wanted to limit this to patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. And if you're a patron, then you're going to hear this. If you're not a patron, go to patreon.com, become a patron of this podcast, and you'll get access to this episode, along with hundreds of other episodes that are only for patrons. These are arguably our best episodes. So if you haven't already, go to patreon.com, become a patron of this podcast, and you'll get to hear this conversation between me and Bob. We talk about the different attachment styles and how they play out with adults. And Bob really goes into detail about how it feels ground level to go through trauma, to go through abuse, and to live on a minute-by-minute basis with disorganized attachment. And it it really opened my eyes, and I think it's going to open your eyes as well. And particularly if you think you struggle from disorganized attachment, then I imagine this conversation would be interesting to you. So go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. Thanks a lot. Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is about the difference between disorganized attachment style and preoccupied attachment style. I feel like I haven't really explained it very well up until this point, and I haven't really explored it very well up until this point. In this episode, I talk with Bob about his experience with disorganized attachment. The conversation gets pretty deep and pretty personal between the two of us, so I just wanted to limit this to patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. And if you're a patron, then you're going to hear this. If you're not a patron, go to patreon.com, become a patron of this podcast, and you'll get access to this episode, along with hundreds of other episodes that are only for patrons. These are arguably our best episodes. So if you haven't already, go to patreon.com, become a patron of this podcast, and you'll get to hear this conversation between me and Bob. We talk about the different attachment styles and how they play out with adults. And Bob really goes into detail about how it feels ground level to go through trauma, to go through abuse, and to live on a minute-by-minute basis with disorganized attachment. And it it really opened my eyes, and I think it's going to open your eyes as well. And particularly if you think you struggle from disorganized attachment, then I imagine this conversation would be interesting to you. So go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. Thanks a lot. So, Bob, I have some patron emails for you, and I thought we'd read them, and then we'd see what comes out of our faces as usual. Bob, what do you say? (laughs) I say, let's see what comes out of our faces. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor at Antioch University, Seattle. And I am supposed to introduce myself. My name's Bob uh, Gettle. I'm a therapist here in practice in Seattle, and we've been friends for a long time. So this first email is from Anonymous Patron. They ask, can you help me understand how to tell the difference between preoccupied and disorganized attachment? I know I'm preoccupied, but always felt confused about some of my other behaviors that seemed avoidant, even though I don't feel avoidant at all. I took an online test on a therapist's website that came out about 45% preoccupied, 40% disorganized, and 15% mostly secure. This made so much sense as to why I was confused by seemingly avoidant behaviors. I'm curious to understand more about when a behavior is preoccupied versus disorganized. The specific example I'm wondering about is my feelings towards my therapist. She's wonderful, and I love her, but I'm so careful not to let her know that too much because it feels scary to me. I'm also careful to be nice because I'm scared of making her leave. I also get really mad at her sometimes because I I like her so much, and she's so nice. 
I really want her to be nice to me and to be and to be close to her, but it makes me feel angry when it happens. Is this a preoccupied or a disorganized thing, and how do you know? So, Bob, I thought this would be a great question for you because mm. you've identified as both disorganized and preoccupied. Mm. So how do we tell the difference between disorganized attachment style and preoccupied attachment style? Well, um, I think it has to do with focusing on what you're going to do to stay secure. And in this case, what this person finds themselves doing is focusing on how do I um, censor or edit myself so that my therapist still likes me and still keeps things even keel and we're still, you know, good friends and um, she or he still cares about me. So that's sort of preoccupied with the relationship and the relationship is the source of comfort and soothing. With withdrawing style or avoidance style, what people do is they don't they they look for self soothing within. So they go within themselves to kind of take care of it. They're not thinking about what's the quality of the relationship. It's more like how do I survive this? This person's describing what sounds to me more like preoccupied than um, than than withdrawn. Right, but they're also asking the difference between disorganized and preoccupied. Disorganized, fearful, you know. Right. So so. I think the difference is um, that uh, disorganized folks, they don't have just one strategy. And so from the outside, they can look like they act in preoccupied ways and they act in avoidant ways. And they do. They act in all that in those different ways. And it can look on the outside like they have disorganization. There's no kind of rhyme or reason. I think there's actually an incredible amount of rhyme or reason, just not to the not to the not so easy to pick up from the viewer, but it sort of depends on the situation. So in some area of my life, I might be more preoccupied, like let's say with sex, where I'm thinking, oh shit, is this okay? Is that okay? Is my partner upset? And I'm more withdrawn in some other thing, which maybe is like, um, you know, what do you want for dinner? Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk to Colleen about what I want for dinner because, um, you know, um, uh, let's see, I'm drawing a blank on how that might be. I don't really like my my example. <laughs> well, I think that uh, 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 it is a confusing thing to me too because uh, even though I did a really long deep dive on disorganized or on attachment uh, theory, when I got to the section on disorganized and slash fearful attachment style, I did uh, further my understanding of it because it is confusing. I think avoidant mm-hmm. attachment style is easy to understand with withdrawn, as you're saying, preoccupied or, you know, borderline spectrum, we might call it, is uh, difficult to understand, but I think comprehensible once you get to know it, especially if you've experienced it or seen it. But disorganized, I think, is is a little bit weird. And I think it often gets simplified into a combination of preoccupied and avoidant. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've actually heard professors say this before, and I always sort of cringe when I hear it because... It's just not true. That's not what the research says. What, oh, the, okay. what, what the research says is that disorganized means you have no coping style. You have no style of coping. That's what disorganized means. And the person is stuck with their fear with no way out. It's the, it's the worst of all scenarios where when we're faced with a attachment ambiguity – the secure person can right. okay. can tolerate it, you know what I mean, and and enough anyway to be able to navigate it mostly, you know, functionally. Where they're like, "Oh, does this person like me? Or did I just get rejected? Well, that kind of hurts, but you know, maybe I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and I'll ask them and I'll I'll kind of, hey, I think that kind of hurt my feelings. And then the person responded, you know, mostly well, but not fantastic. And, you know, that's the best you can kind of hope from people in life. And, okay, you know, I can trust people. And, you know, I'm a good enough person. And this, you know, this relationship isn't perfect, but, you know, it's it's pretty good. That That's what secure feels like. To the avoidant person, it's like, does this person love me? Am I being rejected? Fuck it. I don't need people. I'm, I'm fine on my own. Like, right. I, other people are idiots and... And uh, I'll just, you know, I'm better than other people, that kind of thing. The preoccupied person says, you know, am I being rejected right now? I am being rejected, and this is fucking bullshit, and I'm going to make sure that person understands that what they're doing is wrong because I need them to 
like me, God damn it. <laughs> and hey, stop doing that. Uh, and the other person's like, well, what do you mean? I thought, I thought I was just doing X, Y, and Z. No, you know, you were doing this. Oh, okay. And then once you, once you, and for preoccupied people and avoidant people, they all often shoot themselves in the foot as they're trying to get their attachment needs met. But there's a style to their coping and you can have a mixture of those styles. You can, some people can sometimes use avoidant style and sometimes use preoccupied style depending on the situation or the stage of their life or something, but they have a way of coping. They have a, a strategy. It doesn't always work. And the more pathological, the more it's likely to be counterproductive, but to the disorganized person, which is a fairly rare individual, uh, some research puts it at like 4%, maybe 10% of people, I would put it more at 4%, is when they're faced with a situation of like, am I being rejected? Do, do, uh, do people, does this person really love me? They, they're thrown into a, like a, a pre-verbal state of terror with no way out. They, and they might try certain ways of coping, but none of them work at all. And they're just in this state. And you could imagine that if you have no way of coping with your attachment insecurity and, and no functional way to reach out to other people for functional attachment bids and, and reciprocation, then you're going to be in a very frequent state of terror and dysregulation and need for substances to cover it up or some other kind of thing to just numb yourself. Uh, it's going to be a very confusing life. Uh, people are going to interpret you as being pretty chaotic emotionally. And even when you do approach attachment security, because there's always inherent insecurity in attachment, and without any way of coping, the person will still feel a tremendous amount of fear. With preoccupied, because preoccupied, preoccupied people and disorganized, I think, are the most easily confused. And I think, Bob, I want to hear from you, like, if you can really distinguish between these two and, and yourself, because, you know, you've identified as both, mm -hmm. is that with the preoccupied style, there is a oasis, kind of, where, okay, I'm going to scrap, I'm going to scrape, I'm going to lean in, I'm going to announce, I'm going to make it known, and then I'm going to plead, and then the other person can uh, rise to the occasion and really prove to me, pass the test, so to speak, and now I can feel secure for now. It's like, okay, we finally arrived. You know, it was hard work that we got here. There was a lot of scraping and a lot of conflict, but we finally got to a place where I'm pretty sure you love me. And there's, there's a reprieve. To, this, to, this, to the disorganized person, there is no reprieve. There's scrapping and scraping, but once you get to where your needs are pointing you, you're still terrified. You're, as you get closer to someone, you're also getting – you know, there's, no, there's no safe place in attachment when it comes to disorganized person. And, and that's what this person, honest patron, is kind of uh, describing. You know, she's saying, my therapist is great. But I don't want her to know that because it feels scary to let her know that my therapist is great. I'm also careful to be nice because I'm scared of making, of making her leave. That sounds kind of preoccupied as, as well. But then she goes on to say, I also get really mad at her sometimes because I like her so much and she's so nice. So that's another uh, – it sounds more disorganized in that there's, there's no – there's no achievement of a goal when you're disorganized. When you're preoccupied, there is the possibility of, of a goal being achieved, although temporary. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So have you had that experience as disorganized? You mean um, just fucking scared? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm scared all the fucking time, man. Oh, are you? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. So, so no way out. No. No, I, I, um, no. Like even right now, I can feel it. It's like you've asked me this question, and so you're relying on my expertise, and I'm 
giving you an answer and the answer is falling short of the mark and I can feel my heart rate going up and embarrassment and um, uh, fidgetiness and a kind of defensiveness wants to arise in me. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if you would say that's preoccupied or disorganized, but I can say this, there is no reprieve. And I don't want to let you know. Because of a fear of being hurt or having it yeah. been used against you? or Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or that you're not, oh, this is another reason why I don't want to be with Bob because he, he's too fucked up to be my friend. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think my brain will articulate it in words like that, but it is like that. It's like hanging by a thread, hanging by a thread. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you experience now and other moments like this as, uh, I don't know, no way out of the emotional terror and horribleness? Yeah. That, I don't, yeah. Uh, that's frequent. It's particular to my marriage. I suppose it's where it gets ignited the most, but yeah, no way out. I wonder if it's related because it sounds to me similar to when you would talk about this deep sense of just not being good enough and being flawed at your core as if if people really knew you, they would really, really not like you. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, in verbal terms, like sort of just cognitively, it sounds nuts even to me. But the truth of the matter is, is I don't let anybody get that close. And... I'm terrified just as if, like, I've got this good therapist, right? I, you, everybody, I talk about this guy. He's a really good guy. He's been very consistent, very kind with me. And it's never, it's like it's never enough. It's never safe. It's never secure. It's never, it's never easy. It's always self-conscious. It's always just a half a step away from rejection or mortification. And I... I I like I can't even watch the crazy happen and it still happens. And even when you're at your best scenario security wise with him or anyone you're there's still a visceral sense of fear. I'm don't like yeah. the words you. Oh, it, that's No, that's no, it's okay. It's like a veneer of safety. And it's not unreal. It's like yeah, it's real, but it's a veneer and sort of beneath it is this fairly constant you know okay for now but okay sort of but if you really knew right and um yeah i i don't think i let it's funny to say it out loud i don't really let people know me yeah you know whenever you say that i it makes me wonder if that's part of the disorganized narrative which is that we don't really know you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when, that's a great point. When I would like to think I'm a good detector of bullshit and, <laughs> uh, or at least detector of something's not right here. And meaning that someone is performative or along those lines. Right. And I feel like I have seen at least a good portion of you. I mean, there might be details that I don't know or certain impulses or hostile thoughts, I suppose, that you mm -hmm. protect me from or something. But mm -hmm. I, I feel like I see you. And so, I don't know. I just want to tell you that because I love you and mm -hmm. there's, no, um, uh, there's no uncertainty about that feeling. And it doesn't have any reservations, doesn't have any, well, but, you know, if only he was this or that, you know. Yeah. You know, I thank you. Um, and I think it's a really good observation that mm, the narrative is that you don't. I struggle with that all the time. Like, Colleen knows me up, down, sideways, 15 years uh, together next month. And um, there's still this narrative, even the stuff she knows she doesn't know. It's it's a powerful narrative. It's compelling, and it um, draws me in. Uh, but, like, 
there's a part of me that knows that you know me. And, you know, the details aside, you know, we don't know all the details about one another. We rarely, we probably never would know everything about somebody, but having a sense of who they are and their character and what their lovability or their approachability or um, just a sense of, you know, their nature, that's pretty easy to pick up. And you are smart, so if I was full of shit, you probably would know. And I also can guess at what you're hiding from people, which is what most of us hide from others, which is, you know, judgment that we feel is probably not fair to think or voice or, you know, rolling of the eye, internal rolling of the eyes when we probably feel like that isn't there or... Um, I guess I'm just speaking from my own personal, yeah, but I, yeah, I guess, sure. but I guess from your angle, it's probably more related to, um, just a felt sense of like, well, but I'm a terrible person. Like yeah. I, life has told me that. <laughs> and uh, I just know that to be true. And I, and the way you put it is, it just is so tragic and wrong to me. I mean, it's obviously not your fault. The, the universe or your dad treated you this way is just so wrong that you would have a veneer of security, but the baseline is terror and insecurity and there's something deeply wrong with you rather than the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. That you would have a baseline of security, which you've worked really hard in all your relationships to establish with this annoying externalized, if you will, voice of there's something wrong with you Mm -hmm. i mean have you ever had that sense that the reality of the the baseline was security and this annoying wrong-headed internalized voice was the outsider of personal flaw like so so it's never felt that way to you no it always feels like uh like the voice is the real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And fear is a pretty big emotion with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they call disorganized fearful sometimes. Right. They, yeah. Which I I'm guess, I guess the more I talk with you, the more I realize why they call it fearful. It's, a, it's just a frequent sense of, of fear that you feel. And, and this anonymous patron said, you know, something along those lines as well along those lines yeah yeah so the way i heard it said once was um the hell of uh growing up in trauma is that the person that's supposed to love and care about you is the person who's the most dangerous so there's no there's no safe place there's no there's no there's no good place to be and uh uh let's see why was i saying that well, that you would internalize that experience or through that experience, that becomes the reality because that is reality. Yeah. And then it just yeah. persists. Whereas for me, being raised with an unscary parents, the baseline was of security and safety and consistency with occasional fear. And there was a secure base, as Bowlby would put it. You know, there's a place you can run to, but for you, there wasn't. Do your parents like you? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think I think they like you. Like I, I've, you know, I, I, I watch them in the videos that you post, and um, you know, I've sort of like met them. And I last time I talked to them was at the stroke show you guys did down at the Croc. Yeah. The cover show. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Anyways, the show, which was really great, by the way, it was really fun. And I remember leaving there and they were a block and a half away, standing on the corner, just chatting with your aunt and I think her partner or her husband. And uh, I just, I was, and I noticed them when they were in the, in the club too, they were there, you know, like they were just there watching you. It's like, this is just what you do. My kid's here and I'm, you know, I, I don't know what that's like. I think I spent I spent a lot of time in my twenties um, trying to get my parents to like me and think I was okay, and always feeling like I fell short. And at some point, I think I gave up. 
And I'm happy to have done that because um, it never felt like, it always felt like I was, I don't know, unimportant. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one thing to be disliked. It's another thing to be irrelevant. Yeah. By the people that are supposed to consider you the most relevant. Mm-hmm. And if they don't consider us relevant, then my god. Yeah. You know, funny. If if my parents heard this, they would get so angry with me. They would attack me and you know what they say they said this to us a lot when we were kids you guys are great everybody says you guys are really good kids really good kids so i think we were all just scared shitless scared into paralysis so we never really did anything (laughs) but um i think i don't know i think on the one hand they sort of they believe that but but i think with their own limitations they they don't know how to engage i don't know if i like the way i'm putting it and so they might have to... are you saying like deep down they they might have liked you or had preference for you but just lack the ability to kind of embody it and express it is that what you're saying i don't want to put yeah. that you. no no i think i am saying that uh yeah i think i am saying that How's that feel to try on? It's charitable. Sad. You know, I think I spent a lot of time being so angry with them and bashing them and taking a lot of pleasure in that. And uh, I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to feel so righteous and angry. And um, even though it feels sad, there's something that feels good about seeing them as just humans who are troubled and I have a pretty pretty good understanding of their own grown up experiences and their own development and the limitations uh, that they faced and so it feels charitable and decent and um, complete to see them as you know doing the very best they could and having their own struggles and in many ways, not a chance for themselves to actualize or to be who they are, to know that they're okay in their hearts and their bones. Yeah. Yeah, well, is it slightly healing to think about their being inept as opposed to nefarious? Yes. Yeah, that's a good word for it. I don't think I ever thought of them as nefarious. He, he's he's pretty mean, but he was uh, pretty... Mm, like in a childish way? Yeah, like a tantrum-y way. Like a, I mean, tantrums, shit, man. They were pretty rough, but, but, but not... He was just kind of like um, out of control. Yeah. And, uh, but not like you know, evil or, you know, you know, really pokey. I think he was given to moodiness and to the whims of his mood, but the guy wasn't trying to create chaos or to hurt or to, you know, that's not what he wanted. So yeah, your question was, is it healing? It is healing a little bit to see him as limited and to see my mother as, as limited I still well, don't want to be close with them. Yeah, I mean, makes total sense to me. It, you know, it's it's just terrible whenever we talk about this that I just think for anyone, and but particularly, you know, Bob, my best friend, to be treated this way. I just, it just makes me so angry. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Every parent has problems, but get your shit together, people. Like, I don't know. 
I don't know. Yeah. Like, take a walk outside, Dad. Uh, talk with a friend about it or, you know, go down the street and beat on a chair, you know? Like, don't you have sense to just not terrify your children? Like, or wake up in the morning and say one nice thing to your kid. Let them know that you care. Hmm. Uh, it's not hard. Why do you think they didn't do that? Why, why was... I don't know. I mean, the, the first thing that pops in my head is when we're treated like shit, we just, we're walking around with a chip on our shoulder and it's like, we'll mm-hmm. be damned if we're going to give people grace when we never got it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's a simplistic way of putting it, but I think it's mm-hmm. a, I think it's a common mode that people get into. Um, yeah. I mean, I've certainly been there before where, you know, I, I feel put upon in some way and I can feel the need of just like, Hey, just, Give some, give that person grace, you know, be nice. But I'm like, fuck that, fuck that person, <laughs> you know, like, cause that's yeah. the other part of it is like, it, what, it was a two way street, not that you were to blame at the age of four, but hmm. that your disapproval, which I'm sure happened because of what you're going through, cut to the bone to, for them, particularly, oh, your, that's particularly your dad, you know, my father. Yeah. <laughs> and he interpreted that wrong, but that's how it felt to him. And so a challenge he, to his authority, I think is how he probably would have interpreted it. Well, I mean, that's the, that's certainly an element of it, but another element is, is like my son doesn't approve of me in the same way that my dad didn't approve of me. Mm-hmm. And I can't, you know, I could just uh, imagine, chronically being in that state and and being like well if he's not gonna be nice to me i'm not gonna be nice to him that kind mm-hmm. of that kind of stupid mindset mm-hmm. yeah but i'm i'm just so sorry you know that not only you went through that obviously but really more so that you're still in a state that they put you in you know they mm-hmm. they shoved you in a box and you're still there yeah. It's just so unfair. I mean, with all the good you've done in the world mm. and with, you know, obviously not even deserving to be put, be put in the box in the first place. It's just, it's just one of those eternal tragedies of the human psyche that like those who suffer the most have the most, um, permanence in their suffering regardless of what they do where people like me can just walk around and not have to worry about it you know just luck of the draw Hmm. I suppose I should have more to say about it but right now I just feel kind of sad yeah thank you uh, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, do you see it as tragic and yeah. unfair oh, yeah. and like bad luck of the draw? Yeah. Part of me can see it that way, you know, like at the 10,000 foot view and my folks and where they came from and then the time and the era and getting married young and having four kids and, you know, barely being out of kidhood themselves uh, yeah, bad luck. But my parents were the same. Four kids, 19 when they got pregnant, uh, era, and mm-hmm. not fantastic parents. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and particularly my mom. And uh, But whatever damage they incurred was far less than what your parents had incurred from their parents. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. do you have moments of joy and slight reprieve from the fear? Yeah. Uh, 
everybody's in lockdown nowadays, right? So Colin and I will sit in the backyard with a glass of wine and have a little happy hour and talk about the birds and enjoy each other's company and, you know, it's nice. And in that, those moments, you don't feel the fear. You're in the here and now or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in the here and now. I think, though, you know, it's not too far away, the fear. And when happy hour is over, I think in some ways, uh, no, let me try again. When happy hour is over, I do revert to um, the usual, which is the safe moments. It's like it's like when you play tag, you know, you're on base, <laughs> right? And once you step off base, then you're fair game and... Um, I I think uh, I mostly live between the bases. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, but once you get tagged, you have the power. Oh man, that'd be nice. <laughs> I guess to 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 really make the analogy fit, the it's not tag. It's like a monster's going to eat you. Yeah. Once you're tagged, you're dead. Yeah. Do you feel safe? Like, like, do you feel like, you know, short of something heinous and malicious, which is not in your nature and your character, that your wife really loves you and cares about you and it's not conditional? Right. It's not conditional. I mean, I have my, everyone does, I've come to learn, including myself, have Mm -hmm. attachment and security, and I edge towards avoidance, if anything. And so I will feel consciously comfortable in a distant place, but unconsciously very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, like now, even... In the depths of my soul, I do feel loved and I do feel secure and I do Mm -hmm. feel safe and I do feel like it's not conditional Mm -hmm. and I do feel like it will last forever and I do feel like, well, I also feel like if it falls apart, I'll be okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I don't think will happen, but I know enough to know that you can't know, so... I know that'll be sad, but I know that I'll be okay. Because even within, you know, say she one day just wakes up and says, I don't love you anymore. I want to leave you. I, at least the felt senses, is that I'll still be able to say, well, I know she loved me for a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was real. Uh, for the time it was real. Um, I'm not going to say that I I can't wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat in terror about being alone, because I can. Mm -hmm. But those are the exception. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's interesting that you point out that my, you know, you asked me if my parents like me, because I don't know if I've ever really thought that was like a unique thing, but as you pointed out, it is. To some extent, my mom liked me too much. I mean, not in a bad way, but, mm-hmm. well, maybe in a bad way, because I probably, I have a bit of narcissism, hence this podcast. Um, but, <laughs> but my mom, my mom really, really liked me. And I, and there were times when I'd have to say, okay, mom, I get it. You know what I mean? You think I'm cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my aunt too, you know, my auntie Carol, mm-hmm. uh, same. She would always just, make me feel like a million bucks and still mm-hmm. does. Um, my, my mom and, and my aunt still do. And, and when you say like, do you think they like you? I'm like, well, don't, don't all parents love their kids and shower their kids with compliments and make them feel like a, like a special boy. And when I think about it, when you point it out, I'm so like, oh, golly, how lucky was I to have that? Cause my mom is mm-hmm. particularly complimentary. I mean, I'm sure you've observed that, you know, she, mm-hmm. she'll meet someone for the first time and, and find a way to 
get under their skin in a good way, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, she's very personable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she just treats everyone like they're four because she had a daycare and she's excellent with young children. And she's really <laughs> fascinated with one sh young children. She originally wanted to be a child psychologist, oh. uh, but then got knocked up uh, halfway through her freshman year at Washington State University. Really? Wow. Yeah. And hence my brother. And uh, she is just really good with kids. And and I think it's her safe place. And so whenever she meets anyone, I think she just sees the inner four-year-old in someone and just... Because, you know, when you see a four-year-old, you're like, oh, look at you and your shirt. Yeah. That's a really cool shirt you have. <laughs> look at that drawing. You know, and I, I'm 49 and she's doing the same thing to me. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I actually feel fairly certain that my parents don't like me. Really? Yeah. God damn. Did they like your siblings? I'm not sure. I think they might like my brother, my younger brother. So switching gears a little bit, Bob, just getting back to this patron's question, because I, yeah. I'm still kind of interested in this distinction between preoccupied and disorganized. And, of course, you're one human being with one psyche, but if you were to characterize moments where you are more quote unquote preoccupied, what would that look like in contrast to what we've been talking about so far? I think for me, it's, it's, um, worry about, uh, you know, is Colleen going to be upset with me if this or that? So it's where, and it's doing the, the things I might do to kind of try to stay on her good side or get her approval, um, or get her to, um, think I'm a good guy. Yeah. But you know, it's, it sucks because I want to do things for her out of a sense of generosity and not of a sense of needing um, approval strokes. Right. Even though I know everybody does that and it's fine on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's sort of like yesterday I made her lunch. I put, I, I didn't really make her lunch. I just put her lunch in a little bento box, you know? Mm hmm. And uh, it's this nice presentation of the eyes. It's in this piece of plastic wrap thing and it's, you know presentations everything right especially like to the to... japanese yeah right well it was um it was a california roll right uh so i put a little ginger and a little wasabi and then laid the roll out real nice so it looked good and put a lid on it and put it in the fridge with a note that said that it was her lunch not much different than what was there she had it in a plastic tray that we got at the supermarket but um you know i want to do that those that does a lot dude like if I, the difference between a grocery store plastic tray yeah. and what you just described would improve yeah. the meal tenfold. Yeah. Presentation really is, it counts for a lot. Like it's, it, you appetize by just making it look beautiful. And well, that's half of what sushi is. Cause when you really just think about sushi, you're just like, well, you know, it's just rice and something. And, and yeah. but somehow, but the beauty of the presentation, it just makes mm -hmm. it so much more enjoyable to mm -hmm. eat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so there it is. And, and actually she was really appreciative of it, but I never know how much I'm doing that out of, you know, just generosity and how much I'm doing it out of just try to stay out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. So when you're doing that, if you were to check in with yourself, uh -huh. Would it be like, well, yeah, I mean, this is just a little fun little thing I'm doing for my wife. Or mm -hmm. is it just like, well, I know that if I don't do something, if I, I, I need to do something, otherwise, bad, if I'm just lazy and sit back and do nothing, then something bad's going to happen. She's, she's going to drift away from me. Yeah. Yeah. It's always there. Right. And I think that's, one of the ways I experience my preoccupation is, um, um, I don't know what you think about this, but seeing the relationship as, um, you know, just a couple of steps away from imploding. Yeah. The, I'm taking notes on this cause I'm, I'm trying, cause I, I'm trying to, I, I realize that in my talks in the podcast thus far, I haven't really 
distinguished it in my mind and in my discussions well enough. And I and so I'm so what I'm writing down is like we're preoccupied. There's a strategy. There's a leaning in. Mm-hmm. The so the disorganized part of you is is Colleen talking to your dog. <laughs> Yeah, she is. <laughs> it's always funny to overhear your wife talking to your dog or your cat, you know. It's always just like <laughs> you, you you feel, I don't know, I always feel kind of like a voyeur like I'm because I don't think they know I can hear them, you know. And anyway, hear them. But It's funny, I got these headphones on, I can barely hear at all. I think you can hear a lot better than I can. Right. <laughs> um so preoccupied, it's there's a strategy, there's a leaning in, there's a mm-hmm. a tit for tat. I guess is another way to put mm-hmm. it. It's just like okay, I'm going to do this, and then there's going to be a reciprocation, and and there's nothing wrong with that, uh, but there's a um, desperation to it, right? Yeah, I think the word strategy is really important. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a gamemanship, not like I'm playing mm-hmm. games, but there's a okay, I need to play this right kind of a thing. Right. And then there will be spikes of emotional stress when there are triggers to rejection and spikes of intense emotional attachment signals to Colleen. Like with with preoccupation, I'm just trying to delineate between preoccupation mm-hmm. and disorganized. And I think you describe disorganized well in that it's just a constant sense of fear and mm-hmm. even in times of joy and security it's like you describe it as a veil a very temporary veil that is Mm -hmm. like a thin piece of silk over a giant pile of shit you know what i mean it's just it's just like (laughs) you know eventually that shit's going to soak through the silk and and the the reality will be seen or the silk will descend into the shit or something whereas with preoccupation there's a strategy there and there's a hopefulness there on some level and there's a and there are spikes of distress and and real temporary reprieve and maybe a sense of of lack of self-esteem underneath everything but just like um like the word i had in my notes was like clockwork there's a certain repetitiveness or predictability to the the uh, bids for attachment i guess mhm uh, where they tend to look the same week to week. We can predict for you, Bob, for example, over the next few months, the spikes in your distress, the ongoing strategy, if you will, it'll look similar week to week, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It won't necessarily be dysfunctional, but it will be predictable. Um. And that's what preoccupation is, is mm-hmm. a predictable clockwork strategy that, uh, you know, pervades – it's, you know, it's preoccupation. You're, it's a preoccupied strategy. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you're preoccupied with the strategy of trying to make sure that someone stays in love with you. Mm-hmm. And when you establish security – with Colleen and you're in the preoccupied mode, is there relief or does the disorganization dominate? Hmm. I don't know if I know a good answer for that, except I think that I have moments of relief. Yeah. Yeah. As you get older and heal more, do you feel yourself becoming more preoccupied? Hmm. Interesting. I mean, obviously, you become more secure at times. You know, that's really fascinating. I never thought about it this way, but I spent most of my life single. And I met Colleen when I was 38, and... Um, I don't think I used to experience myself as really moody and irritable in relationships where I might really like somebody, but when I get involved with them, 
uh, I just want to get the fuck away. And I think that, yeah, I think that as a result of, you know, whatever, I, I do feel more, uh, probably more preoccupied than, than I, than I used to, because I used to just keep the fuck away from people. And I'm less, I less, I do that less. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, if I was to conceptualize it, I would say, based on your description, that you were mostly disorganized. You've, through all your work and therapy and marriage, you've transformed into preoccupied, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before, how that's a good step. It mm-hmm. At least you have a strategy now. <laughs> because, I, you know, it's interesting to think about preoccupation as being hopeful, right? That... There's some optimism there, whereas disorganization, there's no optimism. Right. But preoccupation with, you know, with a strategy is based on, well, there's, this has a usefulness. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not useless, this, right. this preoccupied strategy, the, the bids, the constant bids, the, the exaggeration of the, and this is all unconscious, right. of the attachment feelings and signals you know there it's not for nothing it, it it works occasionally and so that's why we do it so much and the uh there you know there's some positive there's a silver i don't know there's a positive spin to that in relation right. to disorganization i would also say that you also are secure i mean people listening right now are in awe of you and your ability to be vulnerable your ability to trust yourself, me, the listeners, with everything you're saying. Hmm. You have compassion for yourself. You're not saying, I'm worthless, and I really am worthless. You're just saying, you know, you're reflecting on it. You're just like, yeah, deep down, I I believe I'm worthless. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I realize that that's not fair to myself, but that's, that's the feeling I have. There's some differentiation there. And... Mm-hmm. That takes security, the ability mm-hmm. to know that. You know, there are there's a there's a long road that you've walked to get to that place where you mm-hmm. can even just admit those things or let them out mm-hmm. or trust me with them or mm-hmm. um I don't know. It, it, does that feel right? Yeah, that feels right. And I think that's security. Yeah. So it's More a weird mixture, you. you know, it's a weird mixture to feel like, you know, the foundation of you is a piece of shit while also feeling secure enough to express it. <laughs> it is weird. I mean, it's kind of a weird way to feel secure. But on the other hand, I don't think that has a lot to do with, you know, the kind of uh, training that you and I have. It's not... Um, um, uh, it's more uh, uh, focused on self of therapist as opposed to here's how you do therapy. Like there's a lot of, you know, like personal examination. We've been sort of trained to do that really from the beginning of graduate school and, um, you know, through supervision and so forth and perhaps other trainings to pay attention to what is the experience of self. And and you remember um, uh, when we took sexuality class and we had to write our sexual autobiography? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like you're encouraged to think about whatever it is that we're talking about in sex, sex ed class and how it applies to your own life. And then he said, um, the teacher, he said, uh, you know, just put uh, the last four digits of your social security number in as your name for the paper, because, you know, you might want to be anonymous. And that way you have some privacy, even as you did that. And I forgot that um, I, out of habit, put my last name in the header of, so so my page, my my. my autobiography had my name in the header through the whole thing while I was being quote unquote anonymous. <laughs> Anyways. Um, well, wait, how did he do that? I mean, we all needed to get credit for writing the paper. So right. did he just grade it and then write the number down and say, yep, look good on another piece of paper. And then when he did grades, he was like, he just looked at that master list yeah. and probably forgot what number was associated with which paper. Right, like a double blind, a personal double blind kind of. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And then, but then we found out that he was a criminal sexual predator. Yeah, yeah I know. who m- might have been 
and uh, liked younger men, mm. boys even, right? And mm. could have been secretly reading our, you know, I mean, a sexual predator, a uh, convicted sexual mm-hmm. predator, thera- sex therapist, mm-hmm. who asks young men like you and me to completely divulge all of their sexual history in yeah, uh, right. in written form. Right. Uh, yikes! Right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Not a. Not a. Yeah. I bumped into him after that all happened at a pub once, I think for my 42nd birthday. And uh, he, I, I, we said hello to one another, and he was very defensive about it all and was talking about how he got a raw deal out of it. What did he say? Basically that he got railroaded and that now he was doing some kind of coaching, um, so not therapy, quote-unquote, but coaching and um that he was sort of a victim of whatever like a a criminal sting went wrong or something yeah because the the conviction from what i remember was he was soliciting minors uh, for for sex online Mm. while being a group home therapist for for teen boys oh i didn't know that yeah he worked at a at I think one of the, uh, what's the, um, Ruth Dykeman oh. in uh, Burien, if yeah. I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have that all wrong, but but anyway, hmm. wow, interesting. I know other people, anyway, uh, you were saying. Oh, so we were just talking about how um, uh, I was thinking about the kind of training that we've been that we've undergone over 20, 25 years, how it um, encourages and pulls for self-examination. Um, I, I think that uh, I probably have developed something of a facility for doing that as a result of, you know, lots of practice doing that. Well, yeah, I mean, you're particularly good at it. I, believe me, I, I have contact with a lot hmm. of therapists, professor, you know, fellow professors, supervisees, and you're one of the, if not the best, self-reflector I know. Mm. So, so, yes, we were trained, but many do not capitalize on that training. Oh. Well, shit. I'm, I'm good at following directions. <laughs> <laughs> so did we, um, did we answer the patron's email thoroughly enough? I'm, I sort of feel like we veered onto me, and I'm concerned that we didn't address... No, I think we did. It's really the only way to answer this question is to have someone who is disorganized really kind of describe the reality of it, which I think mm-hmm. is really informative to me and I'm sure the listeners. I think the, the, the only thing I'll, the other thing I'll say is that we're trying to conceptualize human beings, and that is not an easy thing to do. We're trying to shove all of human personality into four categories, and that's just not possible. There are some people who fit pretty neatly in one, but a lot of it is self-report and the way it's described to you. So, you know, really the larger point that I always try to tell people is it's not the category that you're in. It's how attachment insecure you are and what you do, your what your ongoing repetitive strategy is to cope with that insecurity and is it functional or is it not? Yeah. You know, you could be securely attached and have dysfunctional ways of bidding for attention and love. You can be insecurely attached, you know, in the sense of you internalized a working model of self and others that's pretty bad because you grew up with terribleness and have very functional ways of bidding for attachment security and establish what they call a lot of earned secured attachment Hmm. and yet have an underlying terror of, of being left alone. You, Bob, for example, went through terrible abuse and mistreatment growing up and developed mostly disorganized, or at least a good chunk of disorganized attachment style, meaning that there was no strategy. There was a 
very felt sense of terror of others, a very felt sense of I'm worthless to the bone. I'm flawed to the bone. And through all of your work, you have a wonderful marriage that you work really hard on that, that, you know, has conflicts at times, but I have no doubt the two of you are going to be together forever. And, uh, you enjoy each other's company and, and you have good friends and Mm -hmm. you enjoy your life. You still have this nagging eternalized voice that nips at your heels, but you go to therapy and you talk with your wife about it. You talk with me about it. You talk with other people you have, you talk to yourself about it. And that's, that's the path, you know, and, and that's the hope that I hope everyone can have is that even with all the terribleness, there is a way, um, it takes time. It takes a lot of self-compassion it takes, and it, it's not without its bumps, but that's just okay. You know, it's, it's yeah. okay to have bumps. Um, and so I hope people out there can, um, have that hope, take the time, go to therapy, have self-compassion, tr- do your best to trust other people, do your best to adopt, uh, a, um, functional attachment bids like, when you feel scared, you know, like the example with Bob says, you know, he, he makes the bento box and then Colleen uh, eats the lunch off camera, so to speak. And mm-hmm. Bob later is like, did she, did she like the bento box or did she not? I mean, I do all these nice things for her. Is she not going to thank me? Does she care about me? And Colleen doesn't say anything. And, there's a dysfunctional way, which we could easily come up with on how to cope with that. But there's a functional way of just like, hey, uh, I made that bento box for you. Did you like it? Just a pleasant question, even though inside you're quite anxious about it. You know, just give the other person a chance to answer uh, well. And, oh, yeah, thanks. thanks. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was okay. You could say, oh, well, I don't know. I was kind of hoping that you would... Uh, you know, thank me more than that because I really love you. And I, I don't know, I, it was just my way of trying to connect with you in, in this small way. Do, do you love me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I love you. I, I don't really care about the bento box, but yes, I do love you, you know, mm-hmm. um, and having a routine around that. And that's, that's the way to ask and that's the way to build security and that's the way to address your insecurity. Um, In all fairness, she, she texted me uh, soon after she had lunch, thanked me for it, said she really enjoyed it. <laughs> Did she use some emojis with bent? Cause I think there is a bento box emoji if I'm not mistaken. I'm checking, but I'm pretty sure she did. She did. Yeah. Hold oh. on, I'm checking. See that that requires effort. That says that says double love right there. Yeah, uh, there was something that looks like a pinwheel with a with a spiral inside it, and then a bento box, and something that looks like a hot dog, but I think is two pieces of nigiri. <laughs> <laughs> And then, then one of those little um, faces with the kiss. <laughs> mm. yeah. Well, if there's an eggplant in there, we just don't want to hear about it. So, Oh, really? We got a thing about eggplants? Oh, you don't know? No. Eggplants, penis. Oh, that's right. That's right. The boy ones and the girl ones. And you got to pick the right ones, right? Yeah. Some yeah. people, for girls, some people use peaches and some people use tacos. So you have you have team peach and you have team taco. Oh, you're talking about emojis. I thought you were talking about real eggplants somehow. Oh. <laughs> My god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what which one would you be? Would you be would you do eggplant peach or would you do eggplant taco? Well, now I got to look. I don't even know what eggplant looks like on this thing. Oh, like a penis. Oh, I'll just look for the penis. Don't they just have a penis? <laughs> no, a pe- oh. just a penis emoji. That'd be cool. Let's see, oh, I see a taco. Let's see, 
I see the pinwheel thing. I don't know what the hell it is. It, look, it sounds to me like a roll, like a sushi roll, but I don't know. Oh, yeah, I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Where the hell's the... Oh, there's the vegetables. Oh, yeah, that does look like a penis. Yeah. Where's the peach? Oh, yeah, the peach. Yeah, I get it. Well, Some people think know. peach is butt, but I could see it going the other yeah, way, too. Either way, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. well, we just improved your emoji repertoire game. What's broccoli? Is that like pubes? Um, and to orgasm is the three water droplets. <laughs> I think, um, the, the banana that's partly peeled, that's like circumcision, right? Is that what that is? <laughs> we, could, we could riff on this a while. Yeah. Yeah. So there's variations. Like there's also a screw in there. Oh. Yeah. You know all the things. Uh, I think there's a rocket. There's a train. I think. So, uh-huh. you know, there's all sorts of innuendo right. potential. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I'm going to start playing with this now. Yeah. I'm going to get like 10 eggplant emojis from you in over the next couple of days. Emma. <laughs> well, you might get something weird like a, um, a bathtub and you're not going to know what the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> bathtub teddy bear. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Paperclip? oh man well so people out there how do you experience disorganized attachment versus preoccupied because i would like to know i want to further my understanding of this because i think it is complicated and if you want to comment below it's also appreciated if you want to email bob you can email me and i will forward to him you just say please forward to bob because uh, he always enjoys hearing from people. and Oh, yeah. He's not really on social media, so if you comment, he doesn't get those comments. I try to forward the comments to him as well. but You do? But the easiest way, if you really want to communicate to Bob, is to email us by going to the website, psychologyseattle.com, click on the contact page, fill out the form, and in the, and in the email, just say, please forward to Bob, and, and I will. I'll just forward right to, over to Bob. Thanks. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.